All right. Well, this morning is a sad day and a good day. It's the sad day because we're going to finish up our Angels and Demons series. It's a good day because we're going to get back to Luke. And so, you know, every, every one of these sermons had multiple other sermons begging to be preached on that subject. And this morning is no different. There's just so many good things related to what we're going to talk about this morning that even at 8.20 this morning, I was still struggling trying to decide what I was going to cut out of my sermon. And... uh and it's just uh, really loaded. We've you know been working our way through Luke, and we're getting to the Gerizim demoniac. I thought we'd do the little excursion here to talk about angels and demons, and then other things have come in to that. And finally, uh, we're going to kind of conclude the series on just talking about temptation, issues related to temptation, and how to just get control of our lives as believers so that we are able to walk in holiness before the Lord, and just talk about how satan tempts us and how he um, attacks us and try and talk about the mechanics of that more so that you can understand what you need to do in order to give glory to god by living a holy life now how many of you here have read the holy war by john bunyan praise god about three (laughs) four uh maybe people in the balcony but i can't see up there it's too many lights. But yeah, in the first service, there was nobody on the bottom floor. Shame. <laughs> Shame. Fee or whatever. Yeah. The Holy War was written by John Bunyan. It's an allegory, just like Pilgrim's Progress is. And the story is about a, a, a town called Mansoul, which existed in the city of Universe. Or the country of universe. Mansoul was created by the ruler of universe, Shaddai. And when Mansoul was first created, it was created perfect and it pleased Shaddai in every way and Shaddai thought it was very good. Shaddai had as his purpose to dwell in Mansoul and make it his permanent place of residence. And the town of Mansoul was a walled city and it had five gates. It had the ear gate, the eye gate, the nose gate, the mouth gate, and the feel gate. These gates were designed to be impenetrable by Shaddai, and no one could enter those gates unless the inhabitants of the city purposely opened them up and let people in. The king, though, had an enemy. He had an enemy, it was a... One of his servants who had rebelled and had been banished from his kingdom. His name was Diabolos. And Diabolos was so angry at Shaddai that he came to the city of Mansoul and decided to attack Mansoul in order to get revenge on Shaddai. And Diabolos had several other friends named Beelzebub, Legion, and Apollyon, who also wanted to seek revenge. Their plan was to attack and take over Mansoul. And they planned and they strategized. And finally they included, concluded that the only way to enter the city is if they could somehow get the people inside the city to open the gates. Because the walls were impenetrable. The gates were impenetrable and they just couldn't get in. And so they decided they would go for a plan of deception. 
Since the people of the city of Mansoul were innocent and they were not used to dealing with evil, they thought maybe we could deceive them into opening the gate. And their plan was simple. They would send Diabolos to the ear gate in the form of a serpent in order to speak lies to the people guarding the gate. Then while they had their attention, one of the other fiends would take a bow and try to shoot Captain Resistance and kill him. Since he was the chief guardian of Eargate. So Diabolos came forward and started to tell lies to Captain Resistance in a soft and soothing voice. Lord Innocent and Mayor Understanding and Mr. Conscience and Lord Will Be Will were also there present listening. Diabolos questioned the goodness of Shaddai very subtly at first. And then more and more as he talked. Trying to convince the people of the city that Shaddai really was not that good and didn't have their, their best interests in mind because after all, he wouldn't let them eat of the tree in the midst of the city, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And everybody knows, even by the name of the tree itself, that the knowledge of good and evil is a good thing. And thus Diabolos continued trying to wear Captain Resistance down. And it was at that time that one of Diabolos's cohorts shot Captain Resistance in the head with an arrow. He and he fell down dead. Now with Captain Resistance dead, Diabolos increased his lies about Shaddai. And others on the wall started listening. Lord Innocence just fell dead for no apparent reason. Without Captain Resistance... And Lord Innocence, soon the people of the city opened the gates and all the evil fiends rushed into the city. The people then with one impulse ran to the tree and all greedily ate of it. And they even asked Diabolos to be their king and to rule over them in their once pure town of Mansoul. Now what Bundyan teaches here is pretty crystal clear. He's talking about the fall of Adam and Eve. If you've ever studied Genesis 3, you immediately realize that's the whole theme of the book. The fall of man and the redemption of man. God put Adam and Eve into a perfect environment. He made them perfect. He put them into a perfect environment and he gave them only one rule. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan then appears in the form of a servant, serpent and very subtly and very soothingly begins to erode Eve's confidence in God saying, listen, if you were to eat of this tree, it would make you like God. Implied God's he probably doesn't want that to happen. There's probably a jealousy thing going on there. And you know what? He wore down her resistance. She lusted inside. She ate of the fruit and she gave it to her husband. Her innocence died. Her innocence didn't die though when she ate the fruit. It's when she lusted after the fruit. When she entertained evil thoughts of God, then that led to the eating of the fruit. But why did Adam and Eve fall? Why did Mansoul fall? It's simple. They failed to guard the gates. That's why. They failed to guard the gates. 
This morning, in this last message, I want to address a few issues related to Satan and how Satan tempts us so that you can understand what you need to do in order to resist temptation and be overcomers in an evil day. Now, this first point is Satan will tempt you to sin. And we're just going to, this is just a whole mixed salad here of things. I just want to talk about a few items that you need to understand. First, what is sin? You think, well, you know, everybody knows what sin is. No, not really. As a matter of fact, you will encounter people more and more today who have no idea what sin is. The world is so shutting out God that people now don't really understand. They think sin is, you know, adultery and murder. That's sin. Everything else is fine. But John in 1 John 3, 4 tells us, here's a biblical definition. 1 John 3, 4, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. He goes on to say in 1 John 5, 17, the beginning of the verse, all unrighteousness is sin. That's what sin is. Anytime you deviate from the word of God, anytime you do any unrighteousness, it's sin. The Greek word for sin is harmartia. It actually means to miss the mark. It was, it was used, for instance, in archery when somebody would, would shoot at a target and attempt to hit the bullseye. And if they missed the bullseye, they would harmartia. They would miss the mark. They would sin, deviate from the perfect bullseye. Well, the mark that sin misses is the infinite perfection of God's holiness. God is infinitely perfect. And anytime you or anyone else deviates from his perfection, we sin. In any degree, in thought or action. It's not just murdering. It's not just committing adultery or robbing banks. Sure, those things are sin, but that's just a couple of them. You deviate in any degree, no matter how small in thought or action from God's perfectly holy and righteous standard, you sin. This is why Lord Innocent dropped dead for no apparent reason. As soon as he entertained evil thoughts about God, boom, he dropped dead. Didn't even need shot with an arrow. The moment that you entertain a fragment of complaint, a micron of lust, a grain of of pride, uh, anything to any small, even microscopic degree, you sin, and that sin can damn you to hell. So it's not just the big things, contrary to what the world might have you believe. Second, what is temptation? Temptation is an opportunity to sin, or if you look at it from God's perspective, an opportunity to obey. Temptation comes from two sources. It comes from within and from without. Within and from without. When you look in the New Testament, for instance, the word temptation is also translated test. When it's speaking of Satan or demons, it talks about them tempting us because they want us to do evil. When the same exact word is used of God, it's just translated test because it's talking about God giving us an opportunity to obey. The whole only difference is motive. God tests us in order to give us an opportunity to give him glory by obeying him. Satan tempts us in an attempt to get us to do evil so we won't glorify God. 
And temptation itself is not a sin. You can be bombarded with temptation and not sin. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. That's speaking of Christ. He was bombarded with temptation, but temptation is not sin. A man's walking down the sidewalk. He sees some gorgeous and modestly dressed woman. And there's an opportunity there, an opportunity to either give God glory or not give God glory. He will either lust in his heart or he will not lust in his heart. Satan, of course, would have him sin. God, of course, would have him obey. From God's perspective, it is a test. From Satan's perspective, it is a temptation. Third, where does temptation come from? Well, you can be tempted from your own wicked heart. This is internal temptation. You know, your heart's wicked. You know, a lot of people don't understand this, but when the Bible talks about us receiving a new heart and being new creatures in Christ, it does not mean perfect heart. I mean, we all know this, right? You're a Christian. You have evil thoughts. Bingo. Your heart isn't perfect. What a new heart is, is this. When God talks about us receiving a new heart, what that means is, is it means that you, as a believer, now have the ability to understand the things of God. It means that you, as a believer, have the ability to reprogram your heart and to slowly be transformed from the inside out into the image of Christ. That is the new heart, not perfectly holy all at once. I wish it were that, but it's not. So, you could be, for instance, shipwrecked on a desert island all by yourself. Satan could be, and all his demons could be locked in hell, and you would still have evil thoughts. Why? You're a sinner. There's still evil in your heart. Secondly, we are also tempted by things without. For instance, other people. Unbelievers, for instance, are of their father the devil. Satan uses them as his instruments to tempt us. But even if Satan didn't, unbelievers are still evil, and so they might still try to tempt us even without Satan's help. Not only that, Christians sometimes tempt us, sometimes intentionally, sometimes not. You remember when Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem in Matthew 16, verses 12 and 13. He's on his way. He's telling his disciples, you know, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to the leaders. They're going to, you know, uh, you know, crucify me. And the third day I'll rise again. And remember what Peter did? Peter took him aside and said, God forbid it. This shall never happen to you. You remember that? Now, Peter's, uh, he's got good intentions. I mean, he's an apostle. He's on the right side. And what is he doing? He's lobbying against God's will. Against God's will. With all good intentions, he doesn't want Jesus to atone for the sins of the world. And so Jesus turns to him and says, Get behind me, Satan. Owie. For you are not setting your heart or your mind on God's interests, but man, he says, you are a stumbling block to me. And Jesus was speaking to Peter because he was acting on behalf of Satan against the will of God. So how are you tempted from within your own wicked heart and from without from other people, believers and unbelievers. 
Third, and finally, you are tempted by Satan. And that would include all of his demons. Now, have you ever wondered how Satan does this? How does Satan tempt you? Does he kind of crawl into your metaphysical ear and say, think an evil thought? You ever wonder about that? You're reading your Bible and having some, you know, great time. You're standing up singing some song and all some wicked thought comes to mind. You go, "Mm, what is that? Now, you know what? I don't think Satan can read your mind. The Bible doesn't say he can read your mind. And I don't know how it works. The Bible just doesn't tell us. I, I wish it did. It doesn't go into any explanation about how this spiritual beings tempt us, but we know they do. We know that they promote false doctrine. You know, when false teachers teach, they teach the doctrines of demons. Well, how do those demons communicate with those false teachers? I don't know. It just is it the way it is. Okay? So I don't know that. But you know what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you know the answer to that question. It doesn't matter whether you're being, you know, tested by God or whether you're being tempted by a, a unbeliever on their own initiative, an unbeliever because of Satan, a believer with bad intentions, a believer with good intentions or Satan himself. It doesn't matter. What matters is, is that you do what's right when you're tempted. That's what matters. That's what matters. Now, what does Satan appeal to when he tempts you? Satan appeals to what Thomas Watson refers to as the godless man's trinity. The godless man's trinity. <clears throat> First John 2, 6, 16 and 17 says this. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Now here in this verse is the godless man's trinity. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. That is his God. Now we, as believers, are to live for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The godless man lives for lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. You see, when you are saved, you are born again, you receive this new heart, you become a new creature in Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit, you are regenerated, you're adopted, you're justified, you're sanctified, you're redeemed, and God does all these things for you. Yet all of these things happen in the spiritual realm, and your physical being is not redeemed. It's not redeemed. The physical part of you craves Pleasure, please take care of me. Your physical body wants pleasure so bad that it would have you sin to get it, and it does. Feed me. Touch me. Whatever. Let me look. Let me, whatever brings you pleasure. All of these things, good things and bad things, your flesh just always wants pampered. Turn over to Romans chapter 7, where Paul talks about something we're all familiar with. In Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about the battle that every Christian has to fight every single day of their life. It is a battle against what he calls the flesh, which is really that evil lusting within the members of your body that is contrary to the will of God. And actually, in verses 14 through 24, he goes down and talks about this in great detail. But we're just going to pick it up. At verse 21. So he's talking about, you know, you, you, 
you want to do what's right. And then you end up doing what is wrong. And you're thinking, why did I do that? Well, look at verse 21 and following. I find then the principle that evil is present in me. Not just outside. He's talking about in him already. The one who wants to do good or and the one who wants to do good. Then he talks about that part of you. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. That's the good part, bad part. But I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? You know, try this sometime this, this week. Here's a homework assignment. Just stand in front of the mirror and look at yourself and say, self, we aren't sinning anymore. Now, you know that you're a Christian and you know that no temptation has overcome you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will be able to provide a way of escape. You know that self. You also know God's grace is sufficient, that God has given us everything to pertaining life and godliness, and that you never have to sin again. So don't do it anymore, period. You probably won't get out of the bathroom before you've sinned. Paul describes it in Galatians 5.17, For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, like two poles of a magnet, so that you may not do the things you please. In other words, you want to please God, and then you've got your flesh just craving after all these evil things. You just want to say, stop, stop, the whole time. James describes it this way in James 4.1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Here's the source. It's not the source, your pleasures that wage war in your members. Peter describes it this way in 1 Peter 2.11. Beloved, I early urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly, fresh, fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Oh, we all know this. You see, your heart is in control of your body. So, in order to receive pleasure to your body, your heart has to give your body permission to open the gates and receive it. And what Paul is referring to here when he talks about this body of death, you know what he's talking about there? He's talking about this ancient tribe from his hometown of Tarsus. There was an ancient tribe that had this very interesting way of dealing with murderers. When somebody had murdered somebody else and they were caught, that person then was strapped to the murder victim. Arm to arm, body to body, face to face, nose to nose, mouth to mouth, lashed to them physically. It was called a body of death. Then what happened is, is that body would begin to decay and rot. And then the person being lashed to them would slowly be infected by the dying death of that person they killed. And then that person, though dead, would kill them. And so when Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? This is what he's saying. He says, you see these bodies we got, this physical part of it? It's going to kill us. It's lusting after sin. It's causing us to, to do, want to do evil. And you know what? 
It's going to kill you. It will kill every one of you. You will go down unless the rapture happens. You're going to die. And so he talks about our spirit. Sure, we're redeemed. Our spirits are redeemed and we have the newness of Christ in our spirits. And then we're, we're just kind of inseparably fused to this sin cursed body of death that is going to take us down. And then what will happen is, is once you finally die, your sin cursed body goes into the grave and then you're free. Nothing is added at death. Nothing is added. You have blessed subtraction. You get to get rid of the body of death and you become a perfect spirit. And then at the rapture, your dead, corrupted body then is glorified and reassembled and made perfect and united with your perfect spirit. Then you have a perfect body to go with your perfect spirit. Now we have a perfect spirit to go with the imperfect body. And that's what Paul is talking about. Boy, you were strapped to your body of death. You continually have to deal with it because man, it is infected. It's trying to lead you into the grave as fast as, as it can. And those whose flesh get a hold of them the most die the quickest. Because it just drags them down that path of sin and they destroy themselves with greed and covetousness and lust and murder. So what have we learned? To sin is to deviate any degree from God's perfectly holy standard. Temptation is appeal. Or an offer to deviate from God's standard and sin or obey, depending how you look at it. Temptation comes from several sources. What is the source? It comes from your own wicked heart. It comes from unbelievers and believers and Satan and his demons. But the real issue is, is the heart. The heart is the heart of the issue. And that is our second point. point. You must guard your heart. We all know about viruses. I mean, you know, pretty much people have computers. And even if you're old and you've committed yourself to be a dinosaur until death, (laughs) you still know what computers are. I mean, they're every place. And there's all sorts of malicious hackers and programmers out there. And they do nothing. But sit around and type programs to ruin other people's computers. Isn't that strange? You, you know, I'm good at programming, man. I think I'll write some viruses. Is that wicked? Those are wicked things from without. And here at the church, you know, we have this server and all these computers hooked to it. This what is called a network. And we have all sorts of things set up to try and keep the bad guys out. We've got the firewall, the antivirus, anti-spam, you know, anti-junk mail, anti-whatever. And we have all sorts of electronic gadgets with really cool lights. They're always blinking and doing stuff. I don't know what they do. But they're all designed to keep the junk outside our system, outside our system. To stay out there and not get in. The corruption in the world wide web. If we were to drop those 
firewalls, if we were to just take, you know, let's just do one day, we decide to just unhook the firewall, uninstall all the programs and just trust God for a day. The world would rush into our system with all sorts of viruses and worms and creep through our server and blast kill everybody's computer in one day. No doubt it'd be over. I remember when John Richard first came here and and he was uh, up in his office and he was having problems with his computer and I said, yeah, he says, I, I, I don't know what's wrong. I keep, I keep, uh, you know, I get my disc and I try and copy my sermon on there and it's gone. It disappears. I'm losing stuff. Things are working weird and jumping around on my screen. And he didn't know what was going on. I said, John, I said, have you been updating your, your, your virus software? He said, what's that? <laughs> I said, John, let me come down there. So I came down there and there was the brand new box of virus software still in a cellophane covering sitting on the shelf next to his new computer. I said, John, you didn't install this, huh? He says, install what? He says, I just thought that came with the computer. I said, it did. He said, oh, am I supposed to put that on? Yeah. So he installed it, ran it the first time. There was only 17 viruses. <laughs> and his computer was hooked to the server. And that server was hooked to everybody else's computer. And so we had to work a while to get all the corruption out of the system. Well, in a very same way, your heart is like that. Your heart is the central operating system of your life. But... It's worse than a computer because even apart from the stuff outside, it's already corrupted from within. So you not only have to employ God's means to keep the sin within suppressed, you also have to guard the gates to keep sin outside from getting in, from putting more trash in there. And you can never just shut down the system for a while and just trust God for a day. Or an hour or even a minute. Or all this trash will pour into your life. So turn to Proverbs 4.23. We're going to look at this whole issue of how to protect your operating system. Proverbs chapter 4 verse 23. Here Solomon gives us this great verse which is just loaded with goodies. Proverbs 4.23. Solomon says this. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Now the word watch, as the NASB has it, or keep, New King James Version, or guard, the NIV, is a command. It means to constantly and diligently be watching over something. It could be translated to guard, to keep, preserve, protect from danger, to protect with fidelity, to blockade or be a watchman over. Now you get the idea. The heart is like an operating system of a computer. It must be protected or your life won't be right to give glory to God. And notice the degree to which you must watch your heart with all diligence. The NIV says, above all else, guard your heart. Now that is, that's about as much as you could put into it, right? 
I mean, of, of all the priorities in life, that's a pretty high one. All diligence. I mean, diligence all by itself is a strong word. All diligence is about everything you could do. God is telling you here you need to make as the ultimate priority, the high priority of your life to diligently guard, protect with fidelity your heart. And if you're thinking, well, what are you talking about? You're talking about the pumper? No, I'm talking about everything that is you that's not physical. Your thoughts, your emotions, your will, your intellect, your soul, all of that stuff is all talking about the heart. The heart is a word that's used to describe all of those things in the Bible. Now, the word translated diligence here is an interesting word because sometimes it's translated prison, jail, guards, or guardhouse. And sometimes it's used to describe the act of putting somebody under custody. And so when you look at those things, you could translate the verse maybe literally, guard your heart with all guarding, which is clear. You need to guard your heart, intellect, emotions, will. The real you. Why? Why do you need to do that? Well, look at the text. For from it, the heart, flow the springs of life. Now, the springs of life, you think, well, what's what's that mean? In the biblical context, if you had a spring, that was a big deal. You know, they just didn't go into the house and turn on the water or go to the drinking fountain and get a drink. You had to have a spring or a stream or a rain. That's it. So people who had springs had something very valuable. And a lot of times if there was a spring, a whole city would be built around that one spring. That one spring would keep the whole city alive. And so springs then are uh, an idiom or expression to describe something which is life-giving. So what Solomon is saying here is guard your heart with all every in each bit of diligence because from it flows all the areas of your life. All the areas of your life flow from your heart. It and notice it's not from it flow the spring of life but the springs plural. Every area of your life all flow from the springs. There's many flowing from the heart. So God has called you to be the warden, the watchman, the guardian of your heart because it is the central operating system of your entire being. Now, that's pretty easy. That's pretty easy to understand, I think. The question is, how do you do this? You know, you say, okay, I'm supposed to guard my heart. I'm supposed to really guard my heart. I'm supposed to really, really guard my heart with all every each bit of diligence. I get that because all my life is controlled by my heart. Okay, I got that. So how do you do it? Here it is. Here it is. You can only guard your heart if you guard the conduits, the access points into your heart. It's the only way to do it. Corruption enters into the system of your heart through the senses. That's how it enters. That's how it enters, through the five senses. Now you know why Bunyan had the gates named ear gate, eyes gate, nose gate, touch gate, and feel gate. you, You know why he did that now. 
Because there's only one way to get into man's soul, and that is through the senses. See, your heart controls everything. And the senses are the conduit from what's outside of you to what's inside of you. If you didn't have any senses, you wouldn't know what was in the world, right? If you couldn't feel anything, smell anything, see anything, hear anything, or touch anything, you would just be in silent darkness. Nothing would affect you. You could hit somebody, poke them, scream in the ear, or what? Nothing. They would be gone. No, nothing. And so in order to obey the command to guard your heart, you have to guard your senses. So let's just talk about each of these and what it means. First, let's talk about some of the smaller gates. The first small gate is the mouth gate or sense of taste. And this may not, you know, appear to be a major gate and it's not. But it is used by Satan. For instance, in Genesis 3, 5, where Satan is tempting Eve, he convinces her that the, the fruit was good for food. She's looking at it and going, oh, that does look kind of tasty. See? In Proverbs chapter 5, verse 3, it says, For the lips of an adulteress drip honey. Jesus when he tempted, or Jesus, when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, in Matthew or Luke 4, it says, Satan, why don't you turn this rock into, you know, a hot, buttery loaf of bread? <laughs> that would be tempting, especially if you're starving. Proverbs 13.20 says, Do not be with heavy drinkers of wine or gluttonous eaters of meat. A few verses later in verse 31 of Proverbs 23.31, we read, Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. People become alcoholics. People become gluttons and obese when they are unwilling to guard their heart. In that gate, the mouth gate. Secondly, there's another small gate to the heart. That is called the nose gate or the sense of smell. In Proverbs chapter 7, it describes the seduction of the naive young man by the immoral woman who's called the seductress. And in verse 17, she tells him, I have spread my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon, all fragrant spices. You know, the good looking woman is tempted, but the good looking woman who smells good is even more tempting. Have you ever thought of what happens when you go into a department store at the mall? You need to. What's always there, right? When you walk in, there's a huge perfume center where you're bombarded with smell. You can find any smell you want in there until you find one that you like. And they're all mingled together. That's the first thing you encounter. Do you think that's an accident? Why don't they put that down in the tool basement? <laughs> you know that stores even pump fragrance into their stores in an attempt to feed people sense of smell and make them want to purchase more? You know what? People actually, does, actually, it's their job to find out what smells make people buy more. How would you like that job? You know, and if you were to even go into a small touristy town and there's some little country store with all those little knickknacks and widgets and wall weeds that people buy, then what do they have in there? You know, they have, you know, nice little apple pie, spice, 
fragrance wafting around and it just reminds you of home and you just want to buy some of those home widgets. <laughs> it's just like being in the country all at once. It smells like you baked a hot apple pie right then. You ever been walking down the street and all of a sudden, what is that smell? That smells great. Man, that's hungry. And pretty soon your nose is communicating with your heart. You know, you need to get your body in there. (laughs) And your sense of taste has gone, no cutting. Walk yourself in there. Tell your hand to pull out that wallet and buy some of that food and stick it in. And we've all been there. Now, I'm not saying you need to walk around with a nose pin on. What I'm saying is, is that you need to make sure that you're guarding your senses. You know, be like the airport. Sure, you can go onto the plane, but you don't just get to go on. You got to go through the rigors of being able to get on. You, you have to go through, you know, the search procedure, the scan procedure, the questioning procedure. All those things are designed to make sure that, yeah, we're going to let things in, but we're going to just guard them, scan them, check them out before they get in. Whatever you do, you don't just open the gate and say, come on in. I mean, would you like to be on a plane like that? Mm, that's right. Thirdly, there is the field gate or sense of touch. This gate is substantially bigger than the mouth and nose gates. You know, a man may be tempted to look at a woman, but if she touches him, temptation exponential. Proverbs 7.13 describes the seductress woman as seizing the young man and kissing him. This is why 1 Corinthians 7.1 says it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And if you have the NIV, I'm sorry, cross out Mary and put touch in there because that's what the word means. It means to touch so as to ignite into passion. You know, you hear things advertised on TV as feeling smooth and silky and sensuous. You know, you're in a department store and you're kind of walking around, you kind of see something you like. What's the first thing you do? You touch and go, ooh, I like that. Honey, come over here. Feel this. I like that wrapped all over my body. I mean, do people buy things made out of burlap? It would be cheaper. Pretty soon you've got out your visa and you're got in the sack. You're walking out with your sensual feeling, whatever. Just yesterday, I went to the gallery. One of the things I do to just learn patience and sanctification is I take Leah to the Galleria. <laughs> and uh, she had some gift certificates from her birthday. So, so you know, we're walking in there. And, she, of course, she wants to go into all the teeny bopper shops. There's no tools in there. <laughs> Most of them don't even have any guy stuff in there. And so there I am. And when I stand back and look, I just, it just, they look like ants, you know, teenage ants. And they were just like crawling all over the stuff and grabbing stuff in racks and stacks and piles. And they're kind of rifling through it and just looking, touch. And I just thought, this is a great pace for illustrations. They were abounding. Yeah. Satan can often tempt you and he combines these different areas into a very powerful temptation. 
And even me, I mean, we did go into a place that had some guy stuff and I was looking at shoes and, you know, what do I do? I go over there and I look at his shoe and I grab it and then I put my thumb right in the heel because I want to see how nice it's going to be when I stand up and I'm teaching all day long. I want it to be squishy. I mean, you can wear uncomfortable shoes. I don't want to. <laughs> see, and that's just because I want my flesh pleased in that area when I'm teaching. I don't want to be standing there up here going grimacing while I'm trying to communicate to you. I want to feel good. (laughs) So you need to guard the feel gate. Fourthly, there is the ear gate or sense of hearing. The ear gate is the second largest gate to your heart. And so you need to put extra fortifications at this gate because it's larger than the ones previously mentioned. And the larger the gate, the harder it is to guard Man's soul fell because it failed to guard the ear gate. The attack was at the ear gate. And they sat there and they listened to junk about Shaddai. And that was the end, the beginning of the end. You know, you don't want to be listening to lies and deception and drop your guard. I mean, granted, you have to listen to some garbage out there. You can't, you know, leave the world. But don't let your guard down. Don't just drop your guard. Don't listen to false teachers and say, you know, they might have something good to say and relax. That's just like pouring doctrinal sewage into your heart. And when you're out in the world and all of a sudden you start hearing garbage, put up your guard, you know, tell the person to stop if you can or get out of dodge and walk away. Again, in Proverbs 7, 21 and 22, the seductress bombs the young naive man through the ear gate. And Solomon comments saying, with her many persuasions, she entices him. And with her flattering lips, she seduces him. And suddenly he follows her as an ox to the slaughter. She bombards him with flattery and verbal temptation and enticement. And he follows her like an ox to the slaughter. You ever wonder why department stores just happen to have the very kind of music in that particular apartment that has whatever merchandise they want to sell to that particular age group? Well, I got a big dose of it yesterday. (laughs) I got a lot of thumping, driving, rap music and things that were similar because I was among that. But you know what? When I walked over the guy department, you know, there was this calm, soothing, you know, whatever. If you go down the tool department, you know, bingo. You know, you got tool music, whatever that is. <laughs> You're pumping WD-40 as the fragrance in there. Just makes you want to buy. I need to think about this. This is, this is a million, if not billion dollar industry fragrances and visual and smells and all these things combined to get you to purchase. Just do this sometime. Next time you go to the store, just say, okay, let's see what all my senses experience. You walk in there, smell, sights, hearing, touching, you know, samples to nibble on, whatever. You just go in there. It's just like a smorgasbord. You just want to just throw yourself in reckless abandon. Just buy. <laughs> That's what they're trying to do. Wear you down and the longer you, oh, I'm not buying anything today, honey. And then pretty soon, oh, that looks nice. And then pretty soon you leave with a huge bag full of stuff. And they plunder you like the Israelites plundered the Egyptians. 
You've let down your guard. The adulterous woman in Proverbs 5.3 is described as having speech which is smoother than oil. Speaking, speaking, flattering, wearing down captain resistance. And you know, this is especially true with entertainment because entertainment often, um, it, it can be good. There's a lot of good entertainment out there, things that are fine. But you know what? Mixed in with that is the bad. And so if you're going for entertainment, you have to keep your guard up. You can never let your guard down. Why? Because you'll be having something good, 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 and all of a sudden, bingo! You've got your guard down and you're just shot through with a bunch of trash. Ah! Ah! That's what I do. It's like letting sewer be poured into your heart. I mean, think about it. Uh, you know, you have um, radio industry that you know spends millions, if not billions, of dollars on radio advertising. Why? Because it works. I mean, it works. It's a conduit to your heart. You know, when I grew up, I was the youngest of eight kids, so I had older brothers and sisters, and they listened to every kind of music along with my parents that you could think of. And I never owned a single one of those albums. Uh, for you who are young, CDs or MP3 files. Um, I never owned any of that. I'm telling you, I can just be driving along looking for some radio station to listen to and all of a sudden some classic, hard, grinding rock song comes on and I just think, oh, my head starts moving. And I call, I know all the words to this song. And my wife's over there grimacing saying, you do? I said, yeah. She goes, who is it? I said, I don't know. But I said, I want you to know, I could sing all the words to this song. They're all in there. I've been corrupted. My brothers and sisters saturated me with bad trash. And what's really interesting, I don't know if you've done this. If you came to Christ later on in life, then you know, you've got all this music in your head and then you come to Christ and then you're singing one of your favorite songs and all of a sudden it gets to some, you know, phrase and you get, you can't say it it's blasphemous it's carnal it's wicked i can't sing that song anymore and pretty soon you know you well okay that song's gone and then that song's gone and pretty soon you realize how trashy the music is in the world and before that you didn't even know it why because your gates man they were welded open and all before you became a Christian, you just let it pour in and you were so deceived into thinking, it's not affecting me. And I'm telling you, it was corrupting your system and making your life show the results of the corruption. So you have to be careful of what you listen to. Finally, the fifth and largest gate is the eye gate or sense of seeing. Researchers have said that about 85% of everything we learn, translated, gets into your heart, gets in through the eye gate. 85%. Let me just put this in proportion. It would mean that if you were to draw some gates on a scale and, and the nose and smell gates would be two feet wide. Two feet wide. You know, that's about this big. That's a pretty small door. And the touch or feel gate would be six feet wide. The ear gate would be 20 feet wide, about from here to the organ. And the eye gate would be 170 feet wide. I'm telling you, 
That's hard to guard a gate that big. And that's the whole point. That is where you need to put the bulk of the fortifications at the eye gate. You have to stop evil from entering in. You know what? The eye is one of those things that if you look at something, it just gets in. It's in, it's in there instantly, right? If you stop, that, that image, whatever it is that's bad, is seared onto your brain. It's over. I wish you could memorize Bible verses like that. It's why Proverbs 4, 25 through 27 says, let your eyes look directly ahead. Let your eye, let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Turn your foot from evil. In other words, if you want to have all the ways of your life established, you have to guard the eye gate. Jesus in Matthew 5.28 said, I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her in his heart, has failed to guard the eye gate. Proverbs 6.25, do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her catch you with her eyelids. No tractor beam stuff going on there. You know, we have all these people in the movies or you're, you know, sitting in class, you look over and there's some dreamy thing kind of peering down. Don't let her catch you with her eyelids is what the Bible says. The eyes are the window to the soul, someone said. That's why Job said, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? I'm not going to do it. Psalm 119.37 says, Turn my eyes away from looking at vanity and revive me in thy ways. You got to be ruthless here. I mean, there's this nasty billboard on the way to seminary. I have to drive by it. I hate that billboard. Sometimes I just, I get evil thoughts. I think, you know, I could put some gas on it and light it on fire. (laughs) But it's made out of metal. And so about six blocks away, I just put my visor down. And, you know, I'm tall, so I never lose my, use my visor, but I can see about two feet in front of my truck, and I just wait till I drive by, and then I flip it back up. And if somebody's in the truck with me, I flip it down for them and say, just leave it there. <laughs> and I've had guys with me saying, well, what are you doing? I said, you'll thank me for it later. <laughs> and they always wonder, what, what, what are you doing? I, I don't even tell them. And we have this whole pack in our family that the, the girls especially protect the guys. So when, you know, we're out at places, you know, Lisa will say, uh, honey, look to the left. <laughs> honey, look, look, look to the right. Okay. Look down. Just close your eyes. And then I always ask her, what? What is it? You don't need to know. Keep them closed. <laughs> okay. All right. W- why is that? You know, Nate gets popular science or whatever. He can't open it up until Lisa's gone through there and pillaged it of all of its visual trash. Popular science. The newspaper's the same way. I mean, there's times they go, oh, I want to go look at something. And there's all these pages ripped out and things. Like, oh, praise God for my wife. (laughs) And you just need to do it. I want her to do it. I beg her to do it. You have to guard your eye gate. You look down, you look away, you don't look at it because those things get in in a hurry, instantaneously. So, now you know. Satan knows your whole life flows from your heart. He knows that the key 
to getting your heart to get your body to do what is wrong is to enter into the gates of your senses. He knows your flesh wants to be pleased. So he is going to offer your flesh pleasure and he's going to try and get in through your senses to tell your heart to do the evil so that you will sin against God. And that is the mechanics of how temptation works. And as the concept is simple, but hard to do, you guard the gates of your heart and then you escape corruption. You keep what's evil within suppressed by the word of God, which is what the Puritans called mortifying the flesh. And you keep what's outside that's bad from coming in and corrupting more of your heart. If you do that, you will be a godly person. If you don't, you won't. And I can tell you that anybody who comes to me and says, you know, I've got this struggle in my life. I've got this problem. I've got this reoccurring whatever. It's, it's all a gate problem. Always, always, there's something in their life that they're feeding this lust through one of the gates. That has to stop. When that stops, the problem goes away. All right, let's pray. Father, we are grateful just to have your word, which tells us just amazing things, amazing truths, just about our hearts and our souls and temptation and Satan. And Father, we know we're wicked. We know that there's unbelievers out there who are wicked and believers out there who, with all good intentions, try and get us to do what is wrong. And Father, we know that even you put us to test so that we might obey you like you tested Abraham to see if he would obey you. And Father, wherever the test or temptation comes from, I pray that we would not be absorbed in trying to figure out where it's coming from, but we would remember what to do. That we would be people who would first run to you in prayer, think about what we know from the scriptures, guard the gates of our heart, and that all our lives we would be putting in good to drive out the evil and keeping the evil out so that the evil or the good would accumulate so that we would become more conformed to the image of Christ, so that when we stand before you, we will be unashamed. Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you are a visitor,